Hi, this is Erin Alberti. I'm a reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune, and this is Trib Talk. Uh, we are about halfway through uh, an emergency order requiring masks statewide as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and also limiting gatherings. We find that hospitals are getting more crowded. Thanksgiving is right around a corner, so we've got a lot to talk about. And with me today, I have Dr. Eddie Stenyum. He's an infectious disease physician at Intermountain. Um, and so I guess, uh, Dr. Stenyum, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. All right, so I guess let's start with um, kind of talking a little bit about Governor Herbert's order. It requires masks in public, but I guess not at churches and not while eating at restaurants. It bans gatherings with people outside of your own household, but it still allows people to gather in businesses. It suspends some school activities, but not others. A lot of rules, quite a few exceptions to those rules too. So first of all, looking at masks, um, most of the state was already under a mask order when the new rules began. And, and a lot of our hardest hit counties you know, have been under mask orders for, for weeks or even months before the state required it. So, you know, we've been told exhaustively that masking is important, um, but cases are still rising a lot, lot, lot. So what, why isn't it working, I guess? Because I think people are starting to feel like it doesn't matter because so many right. cases going. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the governor coming out now about 10 days ago, seven days ago was was great um, in the fact that it, it simplified the message. Um, you know, as we had transmission indexes, we had counties coming on and off and that kind of was based on masking or not. And so essentially the message that the governor has said is like, listen, all of Utah is in high transmission period. Um, we all need to be masking when we leave the house. No questions asked. Doesn't matter what your transmission index is. Um, we just all need to do it. Um, but you're right. About 90% of the state was already under a, a mask mandate based on the transmission index. And so the majority of the state was under a mask mandate. This just clarifies it, makes it simple. And we know that going forward, we're going to need to do it. Um, but Aaron, your point is, is, is it going to be enough? And it's one thing to have a mask mandate. Um, it's another thing to have people wear masks. And so um, this is all about community engagement. Um, we know that masks work. The science behind masks is clear. This isn't up for debate anymore. Masks are the safest, cheapest, easiest intervention you can do. Um, we know that they reduce transmission from an infected person in an environment. We also know that they're also protective for the person wearing them. So the science is clear, it's just getting people to wear masks. And, you know, I think it's, it gets into kind of where are we seeing transmission, right? We're seeing transmission in people's homes where they don't typically wear masks. And so people are getting this infection in the community, coming home, bringing it home, transmitting it, amplifying that transmission in the home. And then as you bring in people into your home for social events, family events, you have these big spreading events, which then leads to more and more transmission in the community. And so you can't do just one intervention. Masking by itself is not going to solve this. It has to be part of a, a really multifaceted public health uh, approach. I know that there were a series of, of kind of graphic illustrations of the spread of coronavirus and the aerosol cloud that that transmits it. And it was in El Pais. Have you seen this? Mm -hmm. yep. it, was around, you know, it was shared around by a lot of public health people. Yeah. 
Um, did you find that to be an apt representation of what happens? Because it does show, especially in like family gatherings in a living room, that even the people were masked, like five out of six ended up contracting it in their model. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a little challenging to look at some of those things um, specifically in home transmission where mask use is not a hundred percent. There's not a hundred percent compliance. There's people eating in the home, um, which we know is a perfect time to transmit the virus because you can't wear a mask when you're eating. And so some of those kind of in-home transmission models are really challenging because, you know, what does mask compliance look like in the home? Um, and so I think it's more important for the public to know that in-home transmission is incredibly common. And as you invite people into your home, you know, take Thanksgiving, for example, that's an incredible opportunity for a transmission event. Windows are shut. People are in a tight area. They're talking, they're eating. This is a perfect area to transmit the virus. Now, I know that for the past week and a half or so, well, since since the executive order went into effect, there has been you know a rule banning gatherings with people outside of the household. Um, it's been a week only or so. Mm-hmm. Are we seeing any difference in transmission in small gatherings? Right. So we're probably not going to have a sense of whether or not these new you know, mandates put in by the governor is having any effect until later to the end of this week, unfortunately. And so we know that the incubation period of the virus is it's right around five to seven days, up to 14 days. And so if we had immediate changes in people's behavior, let's say starting the last Monday, seven days ago, we really aren't going to see any effect on our case counts until probably the earliest mid to late of this week. And so we're really going to be looking closely at the numbers um, kind of towards the end of the week to say, did this have any impact? Um, and by the weekend, we should be seeing some changes if behaviors change due to the, the governor's um, uh, message last Sunday. But that's when the order expires. Exactly. So it that need more time. Right. So, um, you know, we think about cases as kind of leading and lagging measures. So what it's going to influence first. Well, first, you have a a mandate that influences behavior. Hard to measure behavior. Right. It's Mm -hmm. hard to get out and measure and put a number on. Have people actually stop doing in-home gatherings. And so your indicator that comes next is your cases. Um, And so really aren't going to see that start downtrending until the end of this week. And then after that is hospitalization. So we know hospitalizations are going to continue to rise for the next seven to 14 days, starting from today, even if transmission were to stop just altogether, which we know it's not right. going to do. And so, you know, what the hope was, and um, unfortunately, you're not going to have data on this um, by the time that the, this two-week period ends, is that the hope is that you're going to really reduce the number of cases um, and that's going to get down to a point where you have lower community transmission, which then eventually is going to offload the hospitals. But that is 100 percent contingent on behavioral change in the community. And so right. we don't have data on that. Right. And so what's challenging is that two weeks is the smallest amount of time you can put in a pause. Um, but we're not going to see the effect of it probably until at the end of next week, early uh, or the end of this week or you know early next week. So it sounds like the order kind of 
came in too late to provide any useful information by Thanksgiving. I think it's going to be um, hard for us to interpret the impact of the order prior to it being discontinued. Right, right. So, and it is being discontinued uh, right before <laughs> major holiday with lots of indoor eating and, and contact with other people. So uh, what, I mean, I don't know that we have gotten guidance from the state about Thanksgiving. What, just from a, from a medical perspective, what is your, what's your recommendation? So our recommendation that we are you know, promoting across Center Mountain is that um, do not gather in large family gatherings. It's that simple. Um, we know that if you bring people together in a home, um, that you will have augmented transmission, period. The amount of COVID-19 cases that we have in the state of Utah is so high right now. If you look at our test positivity rate, if you look at any of these metrics, our, the amount of community SARS-CoV-2 is incredibly high. So if we are bringing people together, we will have increased transmission and that will lead to increased hospitalizations, which is not something we can you know, manage right now. And so um, our recommendation is um, to have a family gathering with the people that live under your roof. It's that, you know, unfortunately it's that easy, but it's really hard to implement because Thanksgiving is a holiday we'd love to gather with friends and family for. Um, but this year is unfortunately a year we, we're not going to be able to do that safely. Um, and especially if you're having people with at-risk populations in your house, older people, people with you know compromising conditions, you're putting them at risk if you're having gatherings. Do you think Utahns will heed this advice? I hope so. Um, I really hope that they take a look at what's happening in our hospitals. I mean, Intermountain ICUs, 94% full, um, which some people not hearing that probably, eh, okay, I don't know really what that means. But what that means is we're getting to a point where, you know, if people are coming in with a heart attack or with a stroke or with a trauma. They're not, we don't have the beds and the caregivers to take care of them. And so um, the implications are, are really vast in terms of what this means to the health of the public. And um, we sure hope that we can provide the care people need but if we continue on this trend, um, we're going to outstrip our resources in terms of caregivers and also physical space. Now, I know at Thanksgiving, I mean, this is Utah, so we've got some a lot of people whose traditions involve pretty massive family gatherings. I mean, like 80 people. I've, I've, mm -hmm. I've heard about the potato counts for some of these events. But we also have a lot of people who maybe will choose a a more middle of the road option or what seems to them like a middle of the road option. And I, I'm guessing that there are probably a lot of our readers who think, well, for the past two weeks and before that, I have been really careful. I've gone beyond the governor's order. I haven't really seen anybody. I haven't gone to a restaurant, I haven't done anything. Um, and the, the people I wanna see for Thanksgiving, it's just a few people and they all say they've been safe too. Meanwhile, like I'm looking around and seeing a whole state full of people going to restaurants and bars and churches, and they may or may not be wearing masks for that. And they're going to go right back to doing all of that mm -hmm. after they meet with, you know, 25 other people on Thanksgiving. So if the hospitals suck in December, 
people are going to say, well, that's probably not going to be my fault because I had one meal with a couple other people. Right. Is, I mean, is there, are there degrees of risk to even entertain right now? Or um, I mean, in the, in the big picture or, right. or should, I mean, cause I don't know if everybody believes that this, the benefit and the risk, re risk reduction of a very small gathering is worth the sacrifice of, of another holiday, especially when people are lonely after two weeks of, sh of lockdown. Right. Um, so, you know, we put on artificial numbers, right. Of like, Oh, don't gather in groups of 10 or more. Or, right. You know, these are, but these are artificial numbers. You absolutely can still have transmission of COVID-19 in a group of eight people of seven people, two, you know, two people, hundred yeah. percent. And so um, the safest thing you can do is not gathering, right? And so, yeah, there are obviously, you know, a spectrum of risk that gathering of 80 people in, um, you know, in a basement and those 80 people haven't taken any precautions, that is a much higher risk than a small gathering of people that have been very, very diligent in terms of their public health measures. There's lots of people doing amazing things. So I, I don't want to discredit there's a lot of Utahns that are doing this right. And they are socially distanced. They're always wearing a mask. You know, they're not going out, they're working from home. They're not sending their kids to school when they're sick. And so there's lots of, lots and lots of people doing the right thing. The challenge is that not everybody is and public health requires everybody to do the right thing. And so, you know, there are people that say, oh, I'm gonna take, you know, two weeks in quarantine, which is going to essentially reduce my risk of having COVID-19 by the time I get together with people two weeks later to very low, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's great. Your risk of bringing COVID-19 to that group may be very, very low, which is a benefit to the people that you're meeting with. But if not everybody in that group is doing the same thing you're doing, and if you have one person who's dining in at a restaurant, who's going to a gym without a mask or going to a church service without a mask, and they bring in COVID-19, well, it doesn't matter what your risk was. You're now at risk to getting infected. And so it, it all depends on how people interpret their risk. You know, I don't know how many times I've talked to patients with COVID-19 and they say, I have no idea how I got this. But then when you push them on it and you say, well, what do you do for work? Well, I work in our office. Do you wear a mask in the office? Well, no, we don't wear masks in the office. And then you say, well, that's where you got this. Like, so people's interpretation of their risk is very different. And um, you really have to understand what is that risk that everybody brings to a small gathering to really understand what truly is your risk of potential transmission. It reminds when I was in high school, I was in a show choir and I remember uh, one of the students was just watching to see if we were doing the dancing and singing. Right. And at one point she said, I think you think you're smiling. Right. And it's like, but then it's like, you really aren't. If you saw your own faces, you would realize and think that a lot of people think that they are probably doing everything right. And I'm wondering, and me, you know, tell me what you think about this. A lot of what we, see about, you know, a lot of our, I mean, I'm, I'm part of this too, a lot of media coverage of coronavirus that we've seen kind of from the beginning, we do see a sort of an amplification of, of a pretty extreme point of view. And we hear a lot from like the COVID truthers, but perhaps 
like, and that gives us like the, the foil or whatever of like, well, at least I believe in coronavirus. So I'm probably doing everything. Like I'm one of the safe ones. The people who are storming a hospital aren't. Is that, I guess, affecting people's overconfidence in their own behavior? Um, yeah. I mean, your question is a good one. Of, you know, are people underestimating the risk just based on the fact that they you know, understand the science of COVID-19. And, and people who are rejecting that. Right. I mean, there's there's lots of camps, right? And I think what you do see highlighted in, in some media reports is the people that are the, you know, the truthers or that don't believe in this. I think that's the minority, right? And mm-hmm. we, 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 you know, we've tried to educate them. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, I, I take some personal... <laughs> you know, um, ownership of this. And maybe we've been unsuccessful to educate them. And we've tried to show them the hospital and the impacts it has on patients and the long-term impacts of COVID-19 and how this destroys families and it kills people. And we've, we've shown them everything we can. And, you know, I don't think we're convincing them. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, at this point, you know, I'm not sure what to do um, for that. And I think it's really focusing on the people that, you know, understand that this is a public health emergency that none of us have ever experienced before. I mean, this is as bad as the 1918 pandemic, right? Nobody's Mm -hmm. ever gone through this before. And I think focusing on those people to understand, like, thank you for doing everything you are doing. Thank you for wearing a mask all the time. Um, But some of the activities that you do, do pose a risk. Indoor dining poses a risk. Gathering with friends outside of your house. Um, that live outside your house poses a risk and really being able to highlight that, yeah, some of these things that you're doing that you think are safe truly can lead to transmission. Yeah. Do you think that the fact that the the most recent order, um, which may be a signal to people that things are worse, but it, it still leaves so many venues for transmission open, like restaurants, bars, churches, gyms, et cetera, um, it, is it inevitable that we're going to have to close that if we're going to ever get a handle on this before whatever distant date of vaccine arrives? Right. I do think that if we continue on the same trajectory, um, that there will need to be more restrictive measures put into place. Um, and that are you know some of the things you highlighted, you know, closing indoor dining, closing bars, um, potentially having high schools go online, you know, maintaining elementary schools in person, you know, these are things that if we don't see a change soon, meaning next this coming next seven to 10 days, um, you know, I think those things are potentially inevitable because a vaccine is not going to be available for the general public for months. I mean, it's great news in terms of what we've seen in the um, from Moderna and Pfizer, but it's not going to get us out of this surge that we're currently in. No, I mean, it's, it seems like this is kind of in it for the long haul. And, you know, I guess to, to our earlier discussion, you know, we had, what, 3,900 people on a single day last week. I mean, yeah. 3,900 people weren't protesting at the state epidemiologist's family home, right? Like, there's a lot of people who probably thought they were doing everything right in that number. Have you encountered a lot of patients that really thought that they, I mean, do they, do they feel kind of betrayed that they thought they did everything right? And then it's like... Right. No, we, we definitely see that. We definitely see people think that, oh, I've done everything right and I still got this. I'm in the ICU. I'm on a ventilator. Yeah. Um, and it's unfair. 
right? It is unfair that, you know, people can be doing the right things and they make one mistake and they can get infected. The virus doesn't care if you wore a mask 99.9% of the time. It doesn't care if it just happens to be there for the 0.1% of time that you're not being careful. And so it is hard that these people, you know, are doing a lot of good things and are still getting infected. And it shows just how sinister this virus is, how contagious this virus is in terms of how well it can transmit um, workplaces, you know, environment. It's, it's just terrible. No, it seems, and you mentioned this, that you hope that one of the things that people internalize before Thanksgiving and before they potentially make the decision to meet with people is just how rough things are going in the hospital. And I was in following social media, I mean, even in places like, like I think Belgium recently had some experience that when people really, um, you know, believed that their access to healthcare or the quality of the care they would receive is deteriorating, that that was more likely to change people's behavior. And I'll be frank, I'm not sure that we have actually gotten a ton of transparency on that mm -hmm. um, over here. I know that we've heard a lot of healthcare workers describe being stressed and tired, but we also aren't getting bed numbers from the hospitals. We don't know what total number is. We don't know how many are. We know we don't, we don't even get a, like a daily update. What percentage of the beds are taken by yeah. COVID patients? I mean, I know I'm parsing the, the dashboard every day, but people who think if they get sick, they're going to go to, you know, say Dixie regional or to like say Tippinogas hospital mm -hmm. in Orem, they don't know how many beds are free in that hospital. They don't know, yeah. if, you know how far they might be transferred away or if their insurance right. will will be, if that'll be an in-network thing once it mm -hmm. happens. We're not really hearing about that. And, you know, we keep instead getting warnings about something that will happen at some undefined future point. And, and every time a doctor comes to a press conference and is choking back tears, we also hear some, you know, somebody else say something triumphant, like, well, we're probably meeting the challenge. We'll keep doing whatever it takes. I'm not sure people think that, that it's as urgent as maybe as, as you as you are saying that it is, so if I go to Intermountain, where you yeah. work, COVID, for a car accident, for a heart attack, mm -hmm. or anything, am I going to be alarmed by what I see there? Am I going to be like, I've sat here for four hours in bed and I haven't seen anybody and I'm fainting and I don't know what's going on? Yeah, I mean, so lots of great comments there and there and we'll kind of maybe talk about a, a, a few of those. Sorry, I kind of went Some of the challenges we've run into is that, um, you know, when we talk about numbers, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. You know, mm -hmm. if I told you that, you know, right now Intermountain Medical Center has 87 COVID patients, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to, you know, a person that's, you know, not doesn't work in healthcare, doesn't work in the hospital. It may not mean anything to, you know, primary care providers who aren't taking care of hospitalized patients. And so, um, you know, putting distinct numbers on some of these kind of loses its context where if I know I heard that, I'd be like, holy cow, are you kidding me? Like, this is incredible. Here's a 460 bed hospital and you've got over 20% for one single condition. Like, that's just is that unheard of? To have twenty percent of, of your absolutely unheard of, right? Okay. I mean, I got, yeah, yeah, we didn't do that, right? That's so, thank you. <laughs> you know, these are the numbers that you know it, it loses its context for most people because it doesn't sound. You know, we're not saying there's three thousand people in the hospital, which is this right. 
you know, number that sounds really big. So it is, you know, hard to relay that in a quantitative measure to people that don't really understand, well, what's normal? Like, well, you know, mm-hmm. how outside of the realm is, is this? I mean, I can tell you that having this many patients for one single condition take up over two full ICUs is just unheard of. You never see that for like influenza. Worst influenza season, you might see five to 10 people in the whole hospital, you know, in the ICU for influenza. Here you've got two very full and, you know, to the limit and we're developing new ICUs that are just for COVID patients. Like that phenomenon has never happened for us in this current, you know, healthcare you know, environment. That's just fascinating. And so it's a little bit challenging for us to be able to convey that message. And so I think that's mm-hmm. the reason why you're seeing um, healthcare systems not necessarily reporting those specifics, but reporting a percentage of, uh, of, uh, um, of how full their ICUs are. The other challenge is that, you know, Intermountain, we're opening up ICUs in places that haven't had ICUs before. The denominator so, is changing. Yeah. And so now what's happening is like, yeah, if you look just at our standard ICUs that we have had at Intermountain, they're all full, 100% yeah. full. But now we have a, a new ICU opened up on a cardiology floor that there wasn't an ICU there before. We've increased the ICU capacity at LDS Hospital from you know 14 to 20 beds. We've developed a new ICU down in St. George in the post you know OR suite, which has never been there before. So it's really challenging in terms of the denominator. Like, are you talking about your standard ICUs? Well, the standard ICUs are full, like period. Like we're now talking about extended access ICUs. And so the care is different. I mean, it's- I mean, how has the care changed? Like, I mean, I I can't imagine we can just go on like this without it suffering at some point. No, the the care is- The care is absolutely changed. So one, you're taking care of patients in an environment that you've never cared for them before. Okay, so things are different, just that. Two is as you open up more ICUs, you can't have the same amount of physicians and nurses and support staff to care for them. You have to increase the amount of staff to care for them. Those people that care for them are different than the people that care for standard medical, you know, um, patients that are on low flow oxygen, those things. And so now you're having us bring in nurse practitioners, PAs to redeploy into the ICU that are supervised by an ICU physician. We have nurses. We're hiring 200 nurses that have never worked with Intermountain Medical Center, Intermountain Healthcare before. Now we're asking them to say, take care of these most complex patients that you've had in a healthcare environment that you've never been in. We're bringing nurses in from the floor. Um, And so the healthcare is changing and it's changing because we're just getting overrun by patients and we're having to ask providers to do things that they aren't comfortable with. And so you'll see that. And it's, it's hard when you say, if I were to come to your hospital, would I notice anything different? So we have one entire floor on um, Intermountain Medical Center. And that whole floor is just COVID patients that are sick enough to be in the hospital, but not sick enough to be in the ICU. And, and you go walk on that floor and what is what you're struck by is you're struck by the fact it's so quiet. Okay. Which is something you would get on the floor. You're like, this seems fine, but it's so quiet because all the doors are shut. 
There's no family. There's no visitors. And everybody's in their room because they're not allowed to walk around. They don't have any families to talk to. Everybody's in pappers and in N95 masks, and it's eerily quiet. Um, and so it is not a dramatic scene, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sad scene. Yeah. It is really sad because you know that in every room, and there's 33 rooms on that floor, is somebody suffering from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it by themselves, and they're scared, and they don't know if they're going to get sick enough to have to go to the ICU. They don't know if they're going to get better and go home. You know, it's it's really depressing and sad. Yeah, I think that, you know, what you were saying about people with all of these improvised solutions, people being forced to kind of break routines and stuff. I, I'm not sure. And maybe that's kind of for our last kind of point here, if you could explain to viewers, I guess, why that matter? I guess why, I mean, how much of doing healthcare without making mistakes depends on sticking to routine and how much do those disruptions, I guess, open up little land or, you know, open up holes in the ground for like, I was used to doing it this other way. And now, Oh my God, i made the mistake. I thought I'd never made. I mean, healthcare is so complex. I mean, you look at, you know, people compare this to, you know, flying a plane. That's not a fair comparison. We know how a plane works. We know everything about that plane. We know about physics. We know how that plane works. The human body is so complex, and this virus affects people so differently and affects every single organ, and it's brand new, and we're just learning about it, and it's 10 months old, right? And so the the, the margin of error is really low, and so now you get people that are coming in that aren't used to taking care of these complex sick patients and you put them in a complex environment, you know, healthcare by it just by itself is incredibly complex. You're potentially, you know, going to have more errors. You're going to potentially not have as good of care that you would have, if you would have had the ICU team that we have in our respiratory ICU, shock trauma ICU, neuro ICU that works together as a team. They know each other. They know their first names. They know, you know, what their daughters do. And, you know, they are a cohesive unit that work together every day. That's the team I want taking care of me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the team I want in my parents and, you know, now you're talking about new nurses, new physicians, new PAs, new nurse practitioners, and you get this complex environment. It's different. It's just different care. Yeah. Well, I, I sure hope that sometime soon we can, get get your teams back to their normal places and, yeah. and optimize what we've got. I, I know that this has been the Dickens and I really appreciate you taking some, some frank questions and just giving mm-hmm. us some honest answers here. I think that it's just, you know, it, it's been a hard uh, topic, I think for a lot of the public to kind of pick out what to remember <laughs> and, and right. it's, it's affecting the behaviors, even I think of very well-meaning people. So, mm-hmm. um, right. Hopefully we can uh, continue to gain clarity on this. And I just really, really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again soon, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.